Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPAD Pod, the Sectarianism Proxies and Desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by Anne Christine Rohn. Anne Christine is uh, a PhD student at Aarhus University working with Morten Valbjorn, and she's also a SEPAD PhD fellow. She's someone who's been working a lot on events in Lebanon and also doing some fascinating work on desectarianization, not just in the Middle East, but also in, in Bosnia. She's written a piece recently for the SEPAD website, which is really wonderful. It raises a number of interesting points, and more pertinently to our discussion, she's She's just come back from Lebanon where she's been getting involved in, observing and interacting with the the protest movements that have been taking place out there. So we'll talk to her in a little bit about what's happened and and her reactions and her observations. So uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me, Simon. Uh, It's a pleasure. It's great to, to get you on the podcast and I'm looking forward to to hearing your thoughts. We had Basil Salouk talking um, a couple of weeks ago about events in Lebanon, but it's, I think it's going to be really interesting to hear your, your take as, as someone studying explicitly this idea of, of desectarianization and someone from, from the outside looking in rather than someone invested in the, in the very future of Lebanon per se. So um, I wonder, can you tell us just a little bit about how you got interested in in this idea of of desectarianization and 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 why Lebanon? Before we delve into recent events, yeah, certainly. Well, I think my interest in Lebanon started in 2016 when I was having a break from my studies between my bachelor's and my master's, and for a number of reasons, I ended up in Beirut, and. It was during the springtime, and it was right after the garbage protest had just swept across the country. Uh, You could still smell the stench, actually, from the garbage when I was there. And it was also the time where Beirut Madinati, this municipal electoral campaign, uh, was established in Beirut and was campaigning, trying to mobilize voters and supporters uh, as a way to contest the entire sectarian system. And... This really fascinated me uh, for a number of reasons, but first of all, because to me, the sectarian system, as I was becoming familiar with it, was something very resilient to change, something really, really uh, good and excellent at defending itself against especially challenges coming from below. And then you suddenly saw this small movement that had an ambition of actually winning against uh, the whole coalition of sectarian parties in the municipal election. And that really caught my interest. And since then, I've been studying uh, popular challenges to the sectarian system in Lebanon as they've been unfolding over the past years. Uh, so I was there during the national elections in 2018 as well. Uh, and now this protest uh, erupted just a few weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, which was uh, totally unforeseen and larger than any of the events that I've been looking at before. Uh, so I made a quick decision and actually went down there to, to follow it on the ground. Fantastic. So, so you landed in Beirut and then uh, what were your initial reactions from this intellectually as well as um, just personally watching this, this revolution take place? Well, I mean... As, as someone who's been studying uh, attempts to counter the sectarian regime before in Lebanon, um, 
obviously I started wondering what, what are the similarities and differences from the previous instances. And uh, what I could see from the developments on Thursday and Friday, two first days of the protests, um, I, I did see some similarities with the 2015 garbage protests in the sense that uh, I see pictures of tear gas and rubber bullets uh, being used to disperse the crowds in Beirut. Um, very similar images to, to those we saw in 2015. But then on Saturday, and especially Sunday, uh, the protests suddenly took a turn. Um, and you saw the masses uh, pouring into the streets. Um, you heard numbers of uh, between a million and two million people uh, in the streets across the whole country. Um, so I, I mean, already when I arrived, got the feeling that this was um, in a way different from, from previous mobilizations against the regime. Um, and I was also <laughs> trying to figure out, as, as I know many of, of the activists and people on the ground, what was going to happen out of this. And at that time when I arrived, that was a late Sunday night, the government uh, with Harry Day Front had given itself a deadline of 72 hours to come up with uh, reform suggestions uh, that would meet the protesters' demands. And at that time, I was speaking with many protesters who actually were wondering whether Hariri would step down already a few days uh, from from that moment. Right. So, so uh, we were dealing with a situation of, of great uncertainty. Really, no one knew what, what was going to happen. And even based on previous experiences, it was impossible to figure out how this would turn out. Yeah. I mean, very quickly, I, I remember the uh, the website that was set up counting down the minutes until that 72-hour exactly. deadline was, was passed. Oh, but, we had so many websites that were responding to these 72-hour demands. Yeah. Brilliant, you know, humoristic uh, pictures and videos being circulated about how Lebanon would look like potentially after these 72 hours. <laughs> like picturing trains and, you know, futuristic infrastructure all across the country. Sure. Uh, to, to already there, you know, ridicule uh, the, the proposals that the government uh, was going to come up with. Yeah, fantastic. I think humour is such a, a, a wonderful part of these things, um, such a powerful tool. But going back to, to your time there, what was the what was the atmosphere like on the ground? With the you you did your interviews, you've been speaking to to activists on the front line of these protests. What were what were people thinking in sort of the the initial days, day three, day four of of these protests? Yeah. I mean, one of the first things I started hearing when I spoke to people, and, and by people I'm meaning both activists but also ordinary people that I met in the streets, uh, the, the thing that they kept stressing was that finally they were proud of, of being Lebanese. And, and by that they meant two things, as I understand it. They both meant that finally they sense, you know, uh, a glimpse of hope for the country and for the, the future. Uh, they really, like, already there, just five days into the protests, approximately, they had a sense, they had a feeling that this would lead to some substantial political change. Um, and, and the second thing they meant was that they were proud of being Lebanese because this was really the first time in, uh, as they could remember, that people in Lebanon all across the country, across sects, 
had defined as Lebanese, first of all, and raised the Lebanese flag. Uh, the national anthem was being sung all over the squares all the time from, from these uh, sound systems that uh, were quickly put up um, as protests started to get the momentum that, that we saw. In the yeah, history. it was really interesting to see that that collective identity quickly emerging, that yeah. expression of Lebanese unity. Yeah, it really was. And and this was also the time we started hearing people saying that, that these protests, I mean, the October 17th, actually, when the protests started, was the date where the civil war in Lebanon ended. Uh, so it was being framed, you know, as a historical moment uh, from the beginning, actually. Yeah. So, so what were people saying then? When, when you were doing these interviews with the activists, what was the, the narrative that you were getting? Well, one of the very strong narratives that I really noticed was the deliberate attempt to frame the protests as leaderless. And, and this is interesting because what you saw on the squares, uh, especially in Beirut where I was, I didn't go outside of Beirut, was organizations from civil society putting up tents. You had the party Sabah, uh, which had been running in the 2018 elections. They were there on the squares. Uh, they had paid to get a tent set up and a sound system set up. You had Sharban Nahaz, the former uh, labor minister, who's now heading an independent movement. He was there with his tent. Beirut Medinati, uh, as I spoke about uh, just before, were also there. And yet they were insisting on not leading the protest, but rather, you know, taking part in providing the physical and organizational conditions for conversations to take place, for people to get food, uh, for activities to uh, be executed in the streets. And, and this was a very strong rhetoric. And it also appeared to be effective uh, as a counter response to the elites that repeatedly tried to ask for the protesters to come up with a leader, come up with a representative who could uh, meet the, polit uh, the political elites and uh, present a list of demands and start negotiating. What was the reason for that then? Why were, why were the protesters so keen to, to stress that it was a leaderless movement? Well, I believe this idea of a leaderless movement being less vulnerable to attacks from the political elites was definitely part of it. Um, but also, you see um, that some people have a lack of trust in, in some of these organizations like Beirut Medinati. Um, even though they have a base of followers, they do enjoy a lot of support, uh, especially from you know, people in Beirut, um, the, typically, you know, you say that it's the urban middle class in Beirut that support these kind of movements. Uh, but they also meet uh, skepticism uh, from people who don't really see them as representatives of the entire country. Mm. And they're aware of that. Uh, they were aware that, that these protests were different in the sense that they were not only centered in Beirut, they took place everywhere in the country and people from many different classes and backgrounds were joining in. So if they were trying to take on leadership, they would claim to represent uh, the entire Lebanese population, which they knew and which people knew that they, they really couldn't. Sure. So 
how did the the narrative of the protesters evolve then as the as the protests went on as they entered the the second week how did you notice the narrative of 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 the protest movements evolving well first of all uh you saw a change actually from the first week where you had this popular slogan or the, the popular song actually about Chevron Basile, the now caretaker foreign minister in Lebanon, uh, which insulted his mother. Everyone literally was singing that in the streets. And then around actually the beginning of the second week, you saw messages circulating on social media where people were starting to, started to encourage each other to not use this song so much anymore uh, because it was sort of, Giving, it was creating this image of the protests as not being serious, as being too much of a party. Um, and, and this actually worked in a way. Uh, so by the second week, you, you didn't hear this song about Chopin Basile being sung so much anymore. Uh, but actually a new song with the same melody was invented, uh, which was about closing streets. Uh, so instead of singing Chopin Basile, Kiss Immo insulting his mother, you would see, uh, you would sing, the street is closed, uh, you're handsome. Do you want to give us a little rendition of the song? <laughs> you mean, should I sing it for you? <laughs> well, maybe next time, but uh, <laughs> it, it's interesting that that's how the, the, the narrative of the song evolved. And I guess that's, exactly. that's maybe aimed at a more inclusive um, a set of protests, calling for more people to, to take to the streets and celebrate the successes. Yeah. Well, celebrating successes uh, definitely uh, was, you know, something that people were keen to do. But, but even actually the, on the night where uh, Hariri had resigned and taken the government or the, uh, the cabinet with him in the fall, uh, there was also a, a kind of mixed atmosphere, uh, not necessarily in a bad way, but... Uh, on that same afternoon, you had had probably the biggest counter-response from the Amal and Hezbollah supporters in Beirut. People came in, about 100 persons, as, as far as I'm informed, came in and took down the tents that these protesters had put up in the, on the squares. And on the night after Hariri had resigned, people were slowly, you know, rebuilding these tents again and gathering in the squares again. And, and they very immediately started having discussions about what should the second phase of these demonstrations be? Should we keep closing the roads, for instance? How mm. do we make sure that we keep, uh, that we sustain this pressure on uh, the now caretaker government uh, in a way that sort of forces them to form a transitional government in a way that we would like them to do and not the way uh, that their interests uh, would sort of take them. Right. So yeah, there was celebration, but but also very you know quickly uh, a new conversation was started. Right. Interesting. And again, that was that was of a leaderless nature, an organic nature. Yeah. I mean, it it wasn't so that the different organizations that were facilitating these discussions did not reveal themselves. I mean. You would hear people taking the microphone occasionally and saying, we are Beirut Medinans, you were organizing this public debate um, with this and that topic. 
So they weren't concealing their identity as such, uh, but but the conversations you saw taking place in the streets were leaderless in the sense that no one was dictating what the right answer was. There was no kind of attempt to sit down in a close space and, and come up with, with agendas. They were emphasizing, you know, this this open space mm. uh, of, for discussions, yeah. Sure. It's interesting to hear you say that. I, I wonder, uh, can you expand a little bit just on the on the response to the, the actions of Amal and, uh, and Hezbollah, what, what were the protesters saying in response to their tents being dismantled? Because it strikes me that that's a really good example of the, the struggle over, well, fundamentally, Lebanon's political system. That's the, the, the old regime struggling to reassert itself. Yeah, well... I, I got nervous on that afternoon, and I was also nervous on the Friday afternoon uh, at the beginning of the second week of the protest where Hassan Nasrallah was uh, giving his speech. Uh, and I thought to myself whether the protesters were now so scared that they would be reluctant to take back to the streets. Sure. Uh, I, w- I was asking myself whether they would actually take down the tents and leave. But when I came back uh, to Martha Square, after uh, the resignation, I was trying to speak to just people from across the square, from across age groups, and really the narrative I got was that they really saw this as a sign of desperation. Uh, the fact that the Hezbollah and ML supporters were down in the streets tearing the tents apart uh, was a sign that they really had no other means of negotiations against these protesters. And there was a clarity, I think, that among the protesters, that now it was necessary to to stay in the streets, to not be afraid, uh, because this showing showing that they were not afraid was actually something they started to do early on in the protest, and that became a very important, you know, counter-rhetorics from the protesters mm. to confront the, the political elites with. Sure. Was there anything that that was particularly surprising about the protests? I mean, the, leaving aside the the scale and and the the successes and the the nature of it, was there anything in particular that that struck you as as odd or or surprising within the context of what was, of course, an existential moment of change? Yeah, I mean. I've had this question before, actually, and, and many activists and, and people I spoke to have been asking me that that very question. Um, and my response to them, and I think this is also going to be my, my response to you, is that <laughs> the most surprising element to me was that the protesters actually maintained to convince each other that it made sense to keep blocking the roads. I mean, after, after especially after the resignation, uh, the authorities were, you know, really putting in efforts into clearing the roads, making things go back to normal. Mm. And even at the Ring Road in Beirut, which was one of the crucial roadblocks during the protests, uh, really this is the place connecting East and West Beirut. Uh, you have Ashafiya on the one hand, which is a rich Christian area, and then on the other hand, uh, you have the road to Hamra, a very, very symbolic place. And the last place all the time that 
that the security forces would, would try and close. And there on the morning after the resignation, the security forces came down, or the Mukafaha as they're called, um, and negotiated with the protesters, who actually gave them a deadline. So they decided to leave the streets, give a deadline uh, for the politicians to come up with a response. And I thought, okay, this is a sign that they might have, you know, slowed down on this road blocking. But eventually, on that same night, they went back into the streets because of various events that happened across the country, which they wanted to express dissatisfaction with. And so it's been going on for the past days. Uh, roads being opened, protesters getting back again in, in great numbers also. Uh, and, and the fact that it's been possible to mobilize people to come down and block the roads on such a sustained basis uh, was something that I didn't foresee and I didn't think was um, necessarily obvious. Sure. It's it's really interesting hearing you say that and to hear that the, the protesters themselves have been asking the same question. So, uh, yeah, yeah that, that, that's quite interesting. Um, We've taken up a lot of time already, AK, but I, I wonder, can I ask one final question? And that's, um, to where do the, the protesters see things going? What is it that they're saying about the future? Well, about the future, they're saying many different things. And I have been walking around on the squares uh, to the different tents and listened to the discussions that people have had continuously about the future, when when this revolution is over, when the government has not only resigned, but when a new caretaker, uh, or not caretaker government, but um, transitional government has been formed, what then? And there are different positions, actually, to that question. And this is where you start to see the divisions uh, really, you know, appearing between the different factions in the protest, because you have actually... Uh, some groups that believe that privatization is the key to, you know, fight corruption in Lebanon on a future basis. And on the other hand, you have organizations that believe that it's a strong state uh, that is the best way to, you know, make sure that, that this political situation that Lebanon is in now will not repeat itself. So you have ideological, huge ideological distinctions, and you also have uh, a variation in the opinions about what form of electoral system that is going to, or that would benefit uh, these independent movements the most. So obviously there's a discussion going on about an early election, um, but before such early election can be held, there need to be some change, many believe, in the electoral law, because the current electoral law is designed in a way that preserves the power of the sectarian parties. Yeah. But how that law should be changed, how big a change you can, you can expect um, is, is very much uh, an open question and there are different views on that. Um, right now, I, it's still uh, my impression that the protesters have uh, so much common ground um, in demanding uh, a transitional government that they can sort of postpone these discussions. But they're starting to have them in the streets and, it's, and it's, it will be interesting to see how they will evolve and how eventually, um, if an early election is going to take place and if uh, this uh, 
sort of redesign of the electoral law is going to take place, how how people, how the protesters and the independent movements will sort of get around that and, and find compromises among themselves. Sure. Well, I guess there's a lot to keep an eye on and lots of interesting things are Definitely. still to happen. But thank you so much for taking time to talk with us today. It's been really thank interesting. You, I've learned a lot and I've thoroughly enjoyed hearing your, your observations. I look forward to, to catching up sometime soon and hearing more about this. So oh, thank you so yeah, much. I'd love to share with you. But it was great just sharing some of my observations from, from the protest um, as, as they're going on right now, actually. I, I look forward to keep discussing them with you. That sounds great. exchanging opinions about the developments that have yet to come. Well, I'm sure we'll have plenty of opportunity to do that. So thank you so much. Um, speak soon. Take care. And as always, thanks for listening.